You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Rekindling the Reformation, Episode 2, with Walter Feit. Tonight we're going to talk about the Reformation. And we're going to just take a brief sweep through some of the historical events that took place and then see where we stand today and then as we go further into the lecture series we'll be going more and more and more into exactly what has happened in the interim and where we are today and how did it happen these are fascinating themes I've titled this lecture let there be light and of course it's the story of the Reformation and particularly Luther. Now Martin Luther was born in Eisleben, November 10, 1483, to Hans and Margarete Luther. Now when you look at these portraits, what is the image that comes to mind? What are the thoughts and conjectures that, that flow through your sentiments when you look at this? What do you, what do you see? Yes, I hear hardship. Would you say extreme wealth is depicted over here? No, probably poverty. These people seem to have had a hard life. And uh, they must have worked their fingers to the bones and life took its toll on them. But these are the parents of Martin Luther. And they really, according to history, worked incredibly hard from this status that they were in to send that son of theirs to college, if we would like to put it in modern terms, to study amongst the best of the best, to become a theologian that was not only above average but sought after by the dukes who were competing for university positions. So he was a brilliant scholar. He was not just an ordinary scholar. Now this is the Lutherstadt Wittenberg. This is where he had his first position after graduating and becoming a doctor in theology. This is where he taught at the university and where he was also the minister, the priest of this particular church that we see here. And he took, his, he took his mission very seriously. Well, inside this church, this is what it looks like. That's probably a replica of the pulpit that he would have preached from. And people flock here to get a touch of this history and to see what happened. Not much has changed in this town. Much of the, the great expansion took place, of course, in what was East Germany just a while ago. And these are the streets and the buildings, and they must look pretty similar to what they looked ago hundreds of years ago. These buildings are very, very old. Here is the Wittenberg University, and you can see the dates there, 1502 to 1815. This is the university that was established to be a great theological center and this is where Martin Luther was appointed as a young professor 
and where he taught his students. And he was an expert in Greek and he, of course, Latin of the day. And so he knew the foreign languages, the ancient languages. This is what the university looked like, even by modern standards. It's a pretty impressive place. And if you go in, it's impressive, it's large, and it was to be a prestige place of learning. Well, the Reformation really started with an incident, and this is just history, I'm just recapping it, when a man by the name of John Tetzel started selling indulgences for the papacy. Now, what had happened was the expansions in Rome and the great cost of restoring St. Peter's had put tremendous pressure on the coffers of the Roman See, and so they issued indulgences and appointed people to go and sell these to raise money for the rebuilding and the refurbishment of St. Peter's to its present-day glory. And this man, Tetzel, was notorious. He was very concerned about selling these. And this is an original indulgence box. When you put the money into the box, then the saying went, when that money falls into the box, the souls will fly out of purgatory. And an indulgence is not something that forgives present sin, but buys reprieve from future punishment in purgatory. And can also buy reprieve for those who have already died. So the fear of death and the fear of the punishment is really the driving force behind an indulgence. And of course if there could be monetary gain then so much the better. When Luther visited Rome the work of rebuilding St. Peter's had already begun. So Luther went to Rome. This is history. I'm quoting from the best the most reputable historical sources, many of which are, as I have said before, being renegated to dust rooms. And here he went to Rome, and he expected this, this euphoria of religion. And what he saw really perturbed him. Julius II was Pope when Luther visited Rome, but in 1513, a year after Luther became doctor, Julius died, and he was succeeded by Leo X, who was very ambitious and wanted to really leave his stamp upon Rome. So vast were Leo's schemes for the rebuilding of Rome that they quickly drained his treasury. And the Pope had recourse to the sale of indulgences. And this is when he commissioned the various territories to be a partner in this venture, because that's how you make money. So you get the government to take a cut of the indulgence. You get the salesman to get a cut of the revenue and the rest goes to Rome. That is an incentive. That's just sound business practice. So the commissioner for Germany was the Archbishop Albert of Mainz and Magdeburg. And this included the area where Martin Luther worked, Wittenberg. And he struck this bargain with Rome under which there was this exchange of money. And then the sub-commissioners, the most prominent and not the least blasphemous, says this, this comes from the story of Protestantism, 
was John Tetzel, a Dominican monk who seemed to have combined the voice of a town crier with the unscrupulous blandishments of a cheap jack. From town to town through Germany, Tetzel proceeded with his retinue at the head of the procession. The Pope's bull issuing the indulgences was carried in a casket on a velvet cushion, and the Dominican bore a great red cross from which were suspended the arms of Leo X, and behind him were the mules which carried the bales of indulgences. I would like to read to you quite a few of these citations today, because the way in which these people described it is, is really fascinating. You know, when you think of the Middle Ages, you always think of these primitive, uh, uh, backward people. You know, they didn't use knives and forks. They sort of, how do the movies depict them? You know, there's always these big chunks of meat, and they go, rah, 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 and you, you have this image of these, these barbarians. And uh, by the way, the name barbarian today actually means someone who is uncultured, who's a barbarian. But that's not where the name originally came from. The name actually came from the Greeks who didn't understand the language of the barbarians, which was a, a mixture of dialects and German. And what they heard when these people were speaking, instead of a language, was they were saying bar, 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 bar. And so the Greeks started calling them bar, bar, barbarians. And that's where the name came from. And today, of course, that name has a totally different meaning. That's just a little bit of interesting history. So from town to town, through Germany, Tetzel proceeded with his retinue at the head of the procession, the Pope's bull, issuing the indulgences, was carried on a casket of velvet. And here we go. All these mules carrying them. And the keys, one was in the hand of Tetzel, the other one was in the hand of the bankers, and the third was in the hand of the civil authority. Isn't that nice? So you had the government, you had the agents, you had the bankers, you had the final benefactor or the final recipient, Rome, all involved. And uh, he would go through the town crying, indulgences, he urged, are the most precious and most noble of God's gifts. Come, he shouted, and I will give you letters all properly sealed by which even the sins which you intend to commit may be pardoned. So this was the nature of the indulgence. Martin Luther, of course, his parishioners, heard these things and so he was riled. Tetzel proclaimed that as Post Boniface VIII had done two centuries earlier, that an indulgence could be secured by the living for the benefit of the dead. Priest, noble, merchant, wife, youth, maiden, do you not hear your parents and your other friends who are dead and who cry from the bottom of the abyss, we are suffering horrible torments? A trifling alms would deliver us, you can give it, and you will not. At the very instant that the money rattles at the bottom of the chest, the soul escapes from purgatory and flies ransomed to heaven. And then Tetzel would say, I incorporate thee afresh in the communion of the saints and I reinstate thee in the innocence and purity which thou wast at the hour of thy baptism so that the hour of thy death, the gate through which is the entrance to the place of torment and punishment shall be closed against thee and that which leads to the paradise of joy shall be opened. So here was this town crier 
speaking these things. And he had signed it with his own hand. Now here's an interesting historic story. This is history. This is not conjecture. And uh, I'd like to read to you what John Dowling relates regarding Tetzel. One incident in his life which I thought really needs inclusion because people don't know these things. A gentleman of Saxony had heard Tetzel at Leipzig and was much shocked by his impostures. He went to the monk and inquired if he had, was authorized to pardon sins of intention, which the monk, of course, had just previously said, or such as the applicant intended to commit. Assuredly, answered Tetzel, I have full power from the Pope to do so. Well, returned the gentleman, I want to take some slight revenge on one of my enemies without attempting his life. I will pay you ten crowns if you will give me a letter of indulgence that shall bear me harmless. Tetzel made some scruples. They struck their bargain for thirty crowns. And shortly after, the monk set out from Leipzig. What happened then? Well, the gentleman attended by his servants laid wait for him in the wood between Jatabok and Treben, fell upon him, gave him a beating and carried off the rich chest of indulgence money. <laughs> Here was a problem. Tetzel clamored against the act of violence and brought an action before the judges, but the gentleman showed the letter signed by Tetzel himself, <laughs> which exempted him before the hand from all responsibility. And Duke George, who at first had been much irritated at this action, upon seeing this writing, ordered that the accused should be acquitted. <laughs> so sometimes it backfires, right? I thought this little tidbit needs to be included. History of Romanism, page 445, written in 1870. Interesting stuff when you start digging. Well, as this... Quote tells us, Tetzel was afterwards found to have been guilty. He was embezzling money. And uh, the citizens who had pleaded Tetzel's indulgence as sufficient explanation of their sins, which they admitted in the confessional, they came to Luther and they said, you know, I did this, this, this and the other, but I'm okay, Jack, because look what I've got. <laughs> I've freed myself from this guilt. And Martin Luther exploded and the fat was in the fire this comes straight from the source books of history his next step was to write a letter of respectful protest to the Archbishop Albert of Mayence and Magdeburg and I'll quote to you Martin Luther writes the righteous shall scarcely be saved he writes so narrow is the way which leads to life those who are saved are called in the scriptures brands saved from the burning. Everywhere the Lord reminds us of the difficulty of salvation. How then dare these men seek to render poor souls fatally confident of salvation on the mere strength of purchased indulgences and futile promises. And then Martin Luther on All Saints Day, November the 1st, 1517 after preaching on this issue, when the service was over, he passed through the crowd, October 31st, 1517, and he nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Now that, most 
people know in the world what happened. It's interesting, he didn't criticize Rome at all. None of the doctrines of Rome were at stake here at this stage of the Reformation. Only the question of indulgences. These 95 theses dealt with the question of indulgence and indulgence alone. This is the famous historical portrait of Martin Luther nailing his thesis to the Wittenberg door. But there are parts of history which have been forgotten and which need to be repeated. When you go to this church today, you will find a replica on the door. Inside there is another replica, as we can see there on the right. Over here, there is another one. And inside there is another one. So you can read them. They all deal with indulgence. They're, they are, well, let's say, a clever counterattack on what has been happening. But the plot thickens. Martin Luther as monk would not have been able to do this alone, so God raised up someone else. Someone of political stature. And this was the famous Duke Frederick. And he was called the great-hearted one, the merciful one. So he was a kind-hearted man. He was a religious man. And he wasn't just anybody. He was an elector, which means that he had a vote when it came to electing the Kaiser, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So this was a very important man, and the whole area of Wittenberg was under his control. So this was the highest political authority of the region. Now, not many people know that Frederick had a dream the night before Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door. This is history that is forgotten. And we need to remind ourselves. At Worms, this is where they have the statue of him. He was an impressive man. I want to read you the dream. The night before Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, the elector Frederick of Saxony had a remarkable dream, and he dreamed it thrice, each time with new circumstances. And the next day, he related it to Duke John. Now, I want you to take careful note of this dream. It says, I must tell you a dream I had last night, he said to Duke John, for I dreamt it thrice, and each time with new circumstances. I prayed to guide me, my counsels and my people according to truth. I again fell asleep and dreamed that Almighty God sent him a monk. All the saints accompanied him by order of God in order to bear testimony before me and to declare that he did not come to contrive any plot. They asked me to have the goodness graciously to permit him to write something on the door of the church of the castle at Wittenberg. This is before the event. This I granted through my chancellor. Thereupon the monk went to the church and began to write in such large characters that I could read the writing at Schweinitz. So here in another town where the elector lived, he could read that writing in his dream. The pen that the monk used was so large that its end reached as far as Rome, where it pierced the ears of a lion that was crouching there. The lion is a symbol of Babylon, by the way. 
pierced the ear of a lion that was crouching there and caused the triple crown upon the head of the Pope to shake. All the cardinals and princes running hastily tried to prevent it from falling. Then I dreamed that all the princes of the empire and we among them hastened to Rome and strove one after the other to break the pen. But the more we tried, the stiffer it became. As if it had been made of iron, we at length desisted. Suddenly I heard a loud noise. A large number of other pens had sprung up out of the pen of the monk. I awoke the third time. It was daylight, so past the morning of the 31st of October, 1517, in the royal castle at Schweinitz. The elector had hardly made an end of telling the dream when the monk comes with a hammer to interpret it. It comes from History of Protestant by Wiley. Fascinating story. And this is the reason why this elector became the protector of Martin Luther. And he took him under his wing when the heat was on and he stood by it. And what was this pen? that caused the triple crown to shake. It was the translation of the Bible into the vulgar tongue that did it. And when that pen started to write, other pens started sprouting. And we're thinking of Tyndall, and we're thinking of the great Geneva Bible that was written there with bloodshed all around, banished people from their realms, coming together and making sure that posterity could have the Word of God. Well, Martin Luther's preaching against indulgences did not augur well for the pocket of Tetzel. And so he threw his toys out of his cots. Tetzel kindled a fire and he publicly burned the 95 theses. And he repeated the hint that had been given previously that that is basically what happens to heretics. And then he proceeded to draw upon an issue of serious counter-theses. And then Luther's students got hold of the counter-theses and what did they do? Don't touch our professor, they said. They burnt them. So here there were fires. <laughs> they were burning the theses, they were burning the counter-theses, and the fat was in the fire. Another and more influential Dominican tells, history tells us came to the aid of Tetzel. His name was Sylvester Massolini. And uh, he instilled confidence in the papal system again. And Tetzel had said one thing and this man went even further. He said, Whosoever does not rely on the teaching of the Roman church and of the Roman pontiff as the infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures themselves derived their strength and their authority is a heretic. So here is the charge of heretic coming for the first time. Heresis. To think for yourself. To make your own decision. You see, in Roman Catholicism, there is a system and one man who speaks infallibly and you have to believe it whether it makes sense or not. And uh, then the other big guns came in, like John Eck, professor of scholastic theology, and he started saying, this is the Bohemian heresy, referring to Jan Hus, who had been burnt previously at the stake for saying things like this. 
And then May 1518, this is just a short while, this is all happening very rapidly, Martin Luther published his resolutions in answers to his critics. And the result, he was summons to Rome. And he was to appear on the August the 7th, 1518, to stand, to take cognizance of the charges against him. Well, Rome is a far way off in those days. How did you go to Rome? By foot? And you had to cross the Alps on foot? That was no joke, going from Germany to Rome. And so the Pope thought about it for a while, and then he changed the venue to Augsburg just to make it more convenient for all the people. And Martin Luther wrote, when he was summoned to Augsburg, in the midst of his enemies, Christ reigns. May Christ live, may Luther die, may the God of my salvation be exalted. He decided to take his stand with God. This Protestant ref Reformation writer writes, Augsburg had been fixed upon as the place of trial. And the reformer set out on foot to perform the journey that the serious fears were entertained in his behalf. Threats had been made openly that he would be waylaid and murdered on the way and his friends begged him not to venture. They even entreated him to leave Wittenberg for a time and find safety with those who would gladly protect him. But he would not leave the position where God had placed him. He must continue faithfully to maintain the truth, notwithstanding the storms that were beating upon him. His language was, I am like Jeremiah, a man of strife and contention, but the more they increase their threatenings, the more they multiply my joy. They have already torn to pieces my honor and my good name. All I have left is my wretched body. Let them have it. They will then shorten my life by a few hours, but as to my soul, they shall not have that. He who resolves to bear the word of Christ to the world must expect death at every hour. Tough guy, this Martin Luther. Now if we jump from his time to the present time, the issue was what? Indulgences. Thursday, 6 December, 2007. Wow, that's less than a year ago. Pope approves Lourdes indulgences. Pope Benedict placed great importance on indulgences. Pope Benedict XVI has authorized special indulgences to mark the 150th anniversary of the Virgin's Mary reputed appearance at Lourdes. Wow! Fascinating. It goes on. The pontiff also said, believers who prayed at places of worship dedicated to Our Lady of Lourdes from 2 to 11 February next year, this is this year. I'm sorry I'm a bit late to give you this information. Had I come a few months earlier, you would have qualified. <laughs> or who were unable to make the journey would also be able to receive indulgences. And the decree was signed by U.S. Cardinal J. Francis Stafford, who is head of the Apostolic penitentiary at the Vatican court dealing with indulgences and matters of consciences. And then it tells a little bit of the history. You know, it's almost as if this modern papacy is saying what was the issue of the Reformation? Here, in your face. The largest indulgence in the history of the Roman Catholic Church 
a universal indulgence. You don't even have to go to the place. Just think of it before those dates and you will have an indulgence. And the Protestant world is stumm. Not a word. Let's go back to history. Luther's first meeting with Cardinal Cardetan, October the 11th, the day after he received the emperor's safe conduct. This is fascinating history. You see, Johann Hus had also received safe conduct. And there the emperor sat when they came together at Constance. And the papal prelate condemned Hus. And the emperor had given him free passage, guaranteed. And the papal prelate looked at the emperor and he said, Johannes, you will be sentenced to death. And what did the emperor do? He blushed. And he didn't say a word. That was the power of the papacy. And here was another emperor. And he gave free passage to Martin Luther. And it's interesting. Because he said, I do not want to blush like my predecessor. And so even though it had already been signed and sealed that Martin Luther should be sentenced to death, he got away with it and his death was postponed. The cardinal pointed out two of his propositions as erroneous at this council. In one he had denied that the sacrament had any efficacy unless a man had faith. In another, he had denied that the merit of Christ formed part of the treasure from which the Pope granted indulgences to the faithful. Four days later, October the 20th, Martin Luther escapes from Augsburg. And Augsburg writes this historian in the story of Protestantism, Luther left behind an appeal to Rome. And I like his appeal. He writes, I appeal from the Most Holy Father, the Pope ill-informed, to the Most Holy Father, the Pope Leo X, by the grace of God, to be better informed. Nice how he puts it in. Luther learned for the first time that they actually had the papal brief in their hand to arrest him and sentence him to death. Wow. So this is again the same thing that they did to Johann Hus. On the receipt of the legate's report in Rome, the Pope proceeded to issue on November the 9th a new decretal on the subject of indulgences, and this is the decretal. All those who have acquired indulgences, whether alive or dead, are released from so much temporal punishment for their actual sins as the equivalent of the acquired indulgence. This doctrine is to be held and preached by all under penalty of excommunication, from which only the Pope can absolve, save at the point of death. This is a papal decree, never been rescinded, which means the richer the you are, the greater your indulgence, because you can afford a bigger indulgence, and the bigger your indulgence, the, the better for you. So this is salvation by wallet. There is no such thing as salvation by wallet. Martin Luther claimed there's only salvation by grace. The effect upon Luther was twofold. We find him writing at about this time to his friend, Wenkelaus Link at Nuremberg, and he writes, The conviction is daily growing upon me that the Pope is Antichrist. Here's this battle. 
Then June 15, 1520, the papal bull arrives condemning as scandalous, heretical, damnable, 41 of the propositions extracted from the writings of Luther. And Luther writes his famous work, The Babylonish Captivity of the Church. The church is in Babylonian captivity. The church is recapitulating the history of ancient Israel. A beautiful typological insight. Typology is the, the stories in the Bible which enacted give a greater truth message. And Martin Luther puts it all together. And he declares that without faith in God's promise, the sacrament is dead. It is a casket without a jewel, a scabbard without a sword. You cannot be saved by what you do. You cannot be saved by a ritual, attending a sacrament, going through the motions. If it's not here, it's dead. That's early Protestant theology. Today we know there's no such thing as salvation by sacrament, if you go through it biblically. So, 31st of October, 1517, Martin Luther posted his theses. January the 3rd, 1524, the Popal Bull was there. So it's a very short period of time that these events took place. And then he was summoned to Worms. And this is what he said. I am called, was Martin Luther's answer to his friends. It is ordered and decreed, it continued, that I appear in that city. I will neither recant nor flee. I will go to Worms in spite of the gates of hell and the prince of the power of the air. And here he goes. Man alone, standing against emperor, and standing against church. Now we went to Worms. Here was this magnificent Reformation statue. And it had been covered. They were cleaning it. And I was determined to have a look. So we peeped inside. There were people cleaning it. They were very kind. And so we climbed inside and we took some pictures. And there is Martin Luther standing firmly on the Bible. The Bible in the hand pointing to it. Sola Scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. This is a picture of the actual monument as it, as it looks today. And it has the elector and all of those and some of the famous sayings of Martin Luther. Those who understand Christ aright will not be taken captive by human laws. They are free, not according to the flesh, but according to their conscience. Nice statements. Real powerful stuff. And this famous one of his, the gospel which the Lord put into the mouth of the apostles is the sword with which he strikes in the world like lightning and thunder. The word of God, the word of God, and the word of God alone. Sola Scriptura. And then he says, der Glaube ist nichts anders denn das rechte wahrhaftige Leben in Gott selbst. Faith is nothing other than the true, absolute living in God himself. And to understand the Bible correctly, for that we need the Spirit of Christ. You see, the notion was, to understand the Bible you need the Spirit of the papacy. 
Martin Luther turned the drum. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Those are the famous statements of Worms. Well, the church where, or the building where this great diet took place was destroyed sometime afterwards and it no longer exists. There's just a plane there where it is. This is the church that is right next to it, the cathedral. If you go inside, you have this replica of the building where Martin Luther actually said those famous words before the Kaiser. Now we tried to get to that history. You could not. It was locked. There was a fence all the way around. The gates were closed. There were heavy chains on it. And I needed those pictures because I had to come and show you. And so we figured, well, how are we going to do this? So we had to climb over those spike things. You know, I'm not too young anymore, but it was fun. We climbed over them, hauled the cameras over, and off we went. And you know what's amazing? Everywhere where these famous sites are of the Reformation, as I showed you yesterday already, the path has been obliterated and sometimes desecrated, in my opinion. So here at this site, what do they do? They have a stage where they feature rock concerts. Right there. And when they open those gates to whosoever in those rock bands pump it out, the history of Martin Luther is drained out. Here is the place where Martin Luther stood. The trees are so bright you cannot see anything. So we had to make a shadow in order to be able to even read what it says there. This is the aula. This is the great hall where he stood. And here stand for Kaiser und Reich Martin Luther 1521. Here stood before Kaiser and Kingdom Martin Luther 1500. And 21, and he spoke those famous words. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. This is the stage for the rock bands, and there are the seatings, and this is where you can have whatever. Well, Martin Luther escaped from Worms, and his friend, the elector, took him in. And he put him in the castle of Wittenberg, and we saw it last night. And there the greatest work for the centuries to follow was produced. That which makes it possible for us to know what God really said. And there as he contemplated his life, having been this faithful monk of the church, never wanting to divide it, here he absorbed the truth of the New Testament. And he saw that all the apostles had been married and that none of these structures within the church really were biblical. And he thought about what he'd seen and what he'd experienced and he wrote his famous works and he wrote his famous document, De Notas Monasticis, which is his work against monasticism the whole systems of monks and nuns, and he spoke about the excesses and the dangers and the unbiblical nature of these excesses. 
And the people started coming out. The monks left the monasteries. The nuns separated themselves. They embraced Protestantism. And the whole of the face of Christianity was changed. Martin Luther is responsible for this act. He himself said, I won't marry because my life is in danger and what have I got to offer? But there was a persistent lady. You know, these ladies can be so persistent. <laughs> and she would not let go. And there she is, Katharina von Bora herself having been a nun. And she and Martin Luther were married. And they had six children. And there are some fascinating stories. You know, never underestimate a good woman. Martin Luther often became depressed. And yes, there were times when he found solace in a drink or two, which the modern day critics love to make a big deal of. And this man who stood for righteousness and did so many things and spoke so many things was discouraged at times, yes. At one stage in his life, he wouldn't even move anymore. And Katerina woke up one morning, she got dressed, and she got dressed in pitch black, with a black veil and a black dress and everything pitch black. And she never said a word, just walked around Martin Luther, did whatever she did, you know, made food, whatever. And day after day after day, she got up and wore pitch black, until finally Martin Luther couldn't take it anymore. He says, what's up with you? What's this black dress you're wearing all the time? And she said, I am in mourning. And he said, in mourning? Who are you mourning for? She says, I'm mourning for God. He's dead. He died. And Martin Luther looked at her and he said, God is not dead. She says, you certainly act like he's dead. Then in the Vatpuk, he starts translating the New Testament. And in May 1522, the printer Melchior Lotter begins the work of this 444-page volume. And now listen to this interesting story. The edition was quickly sold out and followed immediately by a further revised edition containing 21 illustrations on the Revelation of John, based on 15 woodcuts of the Apocalypse of Dürer. And uh, we looked at some of those last night. This is Luther's report, report to Spalatin. On December 10, 1520, 9 o'clock in the morning, all the following papal books were burnt at Wittenberg. These people went to fires, it seems. At the eastern gate near the Holy Cross, the canon law, wow, he burnt the canon law. The most recent bull of Leo X, the Summa Angelica by X. Christ the Sussus, all of these books, they burnt them so that the papal arsonist will notice that it does not take too much effort to burn books they cannot even refute, referring to his books. And then his famous st statement, I cannot and I do not want to recant. So help me God. And then Martin Luther's other famous statement, the time for silence is gone. The time to speak has come. That was 400 years ago. I wonder where we stand today. 
And then let us read what else he said, lest we start climbing on the barricades. Let the minds clash, but the fists keep down. That's good advice. Let the minds clash, but the fists keep down. Our weapons are not swords of steel. Our weapons are swords of the word. In 1518, the Inquisitor Sylvester Prieras demanded full obedience to the Pope. Luther's reply, that the church has only one head, Jesus Christ. By the end of 1520, he was convinced that the Pope was Antichrist. And from 1533, the Emperor and the Pope negotiated a council that would resolve the dispute over faiths. And Luther demanded a free council which acknowledged only the Bible. And then in 1544, he rebutted papal claims. Now, all wasn't well between all the reformers. Martin Luther had a problem with Rome. He also had a problem with the reformers. Here's one of the stones. Gottes Wort und Luther's Schrift ist des Papst und Calvini Gift. <laughs> Which means God's word and the writings of Luther are poison to the Pope and to Calvin. So he had some theological disputes. He writes in answer to one of the Pope's addresses. He says, Rome has cut herself off from the universal church. If ye reform not, I and all that worship Christ do account your seat to be possessed and oppressed by Satan himself, to be the damned seat of Antichrist, which we will not be subject to nor incorporate with, but do detest and abhor the same. Romanism and the Reformation. Here is a poster of the day. It's rather interesting. You have the Pope in the middle over there with his triple crown on his head. You have Martin Luther on the left pulling the ear of the Pope. Can you see that? And there you have Calvin on the other side and he's pulling the ear, the other ear of the Pope. And here's Martin Luther's other hand pulling the beard <laughs> of Calvin. So, you know, people had a bit of sense of humor still. And there was this, this battle going on. Just a little bit more historic information. This is Melanchthon's house where he wrote. This is the work on the epistle of, to the Romans of Melanchthon. And that is what he looked like at his desk, 1557. He was instrumental, of course, in the translation of the Bible, some of his famous documents. And this is the, well, this is the tomb of Melanchthon and Martin Luther. On this side over here, on the right side in this church, we have the tomb of Martin Luther. It looks so small. I don't know how they got him in there. And over here, the writings that the just shall live by faith, that we are not saved by our works, but that we are saved by grace. And then on the other side, you have Melanchthon's grave. So here they are entombed. Now this is interesting. One of the friends of Martin Luther, in fact he lived in their house, he wrote the eulogy as if he were writing in the name of Martin Luther. His name was Johann Reifenstein and he wrote the following at Martin Luther's death. He said, Living, I was your menace. Dying, I will be your death, Pope. In the year of 1546, leaving his 63rd year behind while entering his 64th year, he died. And though he may be dead, he lives. 
Listen to this. Living I was your menace. Dying I will be your death. Pope. I wonder what he would do if he could look into our day. I wonder how he would feel and what he would think. Gratan Guinness writes, in Romanism and the Reformation, in AD 1500 there was not a free nation in Europe, all were subject to the tyrannical government of Rome. Now half of Europe and America are free from that intolerable yoke. Learning was revived. The art of printing discovered. Since then, the word of God has been multiplied, translated, expounded as never before. Mighty interpreters have been raised up, men such as Mead, Sir Isaac Newton, Eliot. Protestant Reformation was encountered by tremendous papal reaction. Hardly was the ship of Protestant church set free and launched upon the deep than there arose a mighty tempest. The resurrection of the slain witness of Christ in the person of the reformers was answered by a resurrection of all the powers of the pit. I like the way these old reformers wrote. The awakening of men's souls brought war, ecclesiastic and civil, a war of anathemas and a war of extermination. Look to it, you brave reformers. Ye many conquer, but it shall be through strife and anguish and seas of blood. Now listen to this historic account. And then he writes, Rise up, O Luther, cry out concerning the Babylonian captivity of the church. Burn the papal bull, rouse Germany. You shall have your match. Satan will bring forth his Lyola. And Lyola is Jesuits. Subtle, learned, saintly in garb, in name, protein in form, infinite in disguises, innumerable scholars, teachers, theologians, confessors of princes, politicians, rhetoricians, casuists, instruments, keen, unscrupulous, double-edged, men fitted to every sphere and every enterprise. They shall swarm against the church of the Reformation, each one wise in the wisdom and strong in the strength, which are not from above but from beneath. He writes, Ride, ride forth, fair flower of France. Strive, ye brave Huguenots, for your country's freedom and the faith of the gospel. But Paris shall run with your blood. You shall lie in heaps like rubbish in the streets. Your bodies shall choke the streams. They shall rot in the rivers. They shall hang in chains. They shall be shoveled into cemeteries or buried in dung heaps. Rome shall ring her joy bells and sing her te deums and fill her cathedrals and palaces with acclamations because the massacre of St. Bartholomew has overthrown for a time the work of the Reformation in France. This is history. So much blood. And where did they go? They fled. And I would suggest that many sitting here are their descendants. And many sitting in my country, the French Huguenots fled to southern Africa. The Dutch Huguenots fled to southern Africa. And there the war continued and is raging today. Stand up, ye Hollanders. Stand up, William the Silent. Stand up, ye men of Harlem and Rotterdam and Amsterdam and Leiden. Ye brave burghers and earnest theologians. Ye dare to contend for civil liberty and sacred truth. Your land shall groan beneath the tread of Alva's troops. Your fortresses shall fall. Your citizens shall be thrust through with Spanish swords. 
Your possessions will be plundered. Your wives, your daughters shall be dishonored and foully murdered. Your children trampled beneath the horse hooves and trodden down like mire in the street. Holland is a tiny little country today. It used to be a huge empire. It was the whole northern part of France, the whole of Belgium. All of that was one country. Today, the sword has eliminated Protestantism and left a tiny little enclave which has been made so debased in terms of morals, it's unbelievable. Break ye chains, O England. Rome shall find a means to rivet them again. I wonder whether he's talking the truth. Thou shalt have thy bloody Mary and thy fires of Smithfield. Protestant bishops shall burn for it. Against thy sea-girt isles, Spain shall send a proud armada, a fleet of 130 great ships of war shall come across the seas, 12 of them named after the 12 apostles. They shall be laden with seamen and troops, with swords and guns, with priests and Jesuits. The Pope shall bless their banners. Woe to thee, O England, if heaven help thee not, if the winds forsake thy cause. What a magnificent poetic sweep through history. Those ships came, those massive Spanish armada, Sir Francis Drake with one-tenth of the ships trying to stand against in these tiny ships. And then the storms came and that swept that armada and crashed it against the coasts of Scotland. And Sir Francis Drake cleaned up the rest. And as a consequence of a storm, the Bible is in every part of the world today. If that had not happened, we would not have the Bible. Is this war over? Or is it just the end of this war? I want to jump to modern times, and I'm going to quote only from modern times. You will see my quotes come from the last two or maybe three years. And we're dealing with this Pope, the present Pope. This is the address of His Holiness Benedict XVI to the Patriarch of Constantinople. We all desire to accompany its work with persevering prayer, talking about the ecumenism. May the Lord enlighten the Catholic and the Orthodox members so that they may propose on the basis of sacred scripture and of the tradition of the church. That was the issue of the Reformation. It's back. Solutions that can lead us to make important steps towards full communion. I am very pleased to hear that the ecumenical, ecumenical patriarch and patriarch Bartholomew I himself are following the work of this commission with similar sentiments. The Reformation is over. Here is his address in 2006 to the brothers of the Society of Jesus, to the Jesuits who were raised up to destroy the Reformation. And Pope Benedict says to them, Your visit today gives me the opportunity to thank the Lord with you for having granted your society the gift of men of extraordinary holiness and exceptional apostolic zeal, such as St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Francis Xavier. These are the men who raised up the Inquisition. These are the men that had millions murdered because they dared to believe what the Bible said. Sir Francis Xavier went to India. What did he find there? Christians. 
Sabbath-keeping Christians nonetheless. And what did he say? What is this heresy that I find here? Where did this come from? And he ordered the Inquisition in Goa, and they massacred them. They wiped them out. These are the saints that the Pope is referring to. And he says, You are the fathers for you. They are the fathers and the founders. It is therefore appropriate that in this centenary year, you commemorate them with a gratitude and look to them as enlightened and reliable guides on your spiritual journey and your apostolic activities. Thus, he left his followers a precious spiritual legacy that must not be lost or forgotten. Precisely because he was a man of God, Saint Ignatius was a faithful servant of the church in which he saw and venerated the bride of the Lord and the mother of Christians and the special vow of obedience to the Pope, which he himself described as our first and principal foundation. What is the foundation upon which no man can build, according to the Bible? No other foundation save Christ Jesus. Here we have moved to a new foundation, thanks to the counter-reformation of the Jesuits. That which the Reformation disputed is back. This ecclesiastical characteristic so specific to the society of Jesus lives in, in, on in you and your apostolic activities, dear Jesuits, so that you may faithfully meet the urgent needs of the church today. Here is his report, December 2007. All of these come straight from the Vatican itself. Pope calls Christian division a scandal. The Reformation divided us. We have to come together. The Christian Post reports that Pope Benedict called divisions amongst Christians a scandal to the world at the joint ceremony Thursday with the spiritual leader of the Orthodox Christian Church. They split a thousand years ago. Protestantism split 400 years ago. We are going to get together. There's going to be one religious leader. And so the Orthodox question is a thing of the past. Renew Europe's awareness of the Christian roots, traditions and values, giving them new vitality. So the vitality of Protestantism has been eradicated. Now we need a tradition. Benedict and Bartholomew together stressed the need to preserve Christian roots in the European culture while remaining open to other religions and their cultural contributions. Did they take hands? They certainly did. They held their hands aloft and the old axe has been buried. Perhaps they would even one day kiss each other. Oh, they already did. We are living in very interesting times. If you have tolerance for these things, then you can embrace every error. Vatican says Potter's magic is okay. It's okay to mingle a little witchcraft with your religion, to come to church dressed as Harry Potter and cast your spells. Who cares? As long as he is primate. And the theology, has it changed? No. Here is the letter from the Theosophical Society. And this letter was written 120 years ago to the Archbishop of Canterbury. An open letter. 
The Theosophical Society worships whom? Lucifer. It's the open, blatant worship of Lucifer. What is their journal's name? Their journal's name is Lucifer. And this is what they wrote. Lucifer to the Archbishop of Canterbury, 120 years ago. My Lord Primate of all England, we make use of an open letter to your grace as a vehicle to convey to you and through you to the clergy, to their flocks, and to Christians generally who regard us as the enemies of Christ, a brief statement of the position which theosophy occupies in regard to Christianity. As we believe that the time for making that statement has arrived, your grace is no doubt aware that theosophy is not a religion, but a philosophy, at once a religion and scientific. And that the chief work so far of the Theosophical Society has been to revive in each religion its own animating spirit by encouraging and helping inquiry into the true significance of its doctrines and observances. Theosophists know that the deeper one penetrates into the meanings of the dogmas and ceremonies of religions, of all religions, the greater becomes their apparent underlying similarity. 120 years ago, until finally a perception of their fundamental unity is reached. This common ground is no other than theosophy, the secret doctrine of all ages which diluted and disguised to suit the capacity of the multitude. I'm sorry that we're all so uninformed and uh, pathetic, but nevertheless. And the requirements of the time has formed the living kernel of all religions. Time to join all the religions under theosophy. Under the reign of Lucifer, this Blavatsky's letter, Lucifer, volume 1, number 4, December 1887, pages 242 to 251. Christian News, Dutch Reformed Church, that's Presbyterianism. The Dutch Reformed Church is to check whether Satan exists. How nice. And to accept gay pastors with conditions. Fascinating. So the church today has to find out whether Satan exists. Uh, can't you just read in the Bible and see that he tempted the Lord himself? Yes or no? Where have we come to? This is a prominent theologian. His name, Professor Volmerans. And uh, these are the people that train the theologists of today, the pastors of the world. And who is he talking to? He's talking to the Theosophical Society. I'm very glad that uh, the Theosophical Society shares some of these insights. And in a certain sense, we are reinventing the wheel. But this is wonderful, you know, that something globally is happening right now which we don't understand, but it's happening. Some of the ideas, you know, that, that we are mentioning right now already appeared in the Gnostics, which was a Christian sect of the uh, first and second centuries, you know. And, and a lot of people criticizing us, they're saying, we're just saying what already has been said and already been argued and already been shown to be heretic. We're just saying it again. So what? We finally come full circle. 
theosophy, what you said, we embrace it today. We've come full circle. So what? It's fine. My own experience, if I may share a little bit. I come from a family that had deep occultic connections. And I wanted to get hold of a statement. I'm a bit of a naughty fellow. And so I wanted to get hold of a statement that you can only get from an inner circle. And my wife, having been the daughter of a very, very high, prominent occultist who is now dead, and I have great respect for my father-in-law, we used his name to knock on the door of his previous occult connections to ask them whether we could get hold of a book from them. But when they heard who we were, and who my wife was in particular, they were so excited they invited us in. We nearly had a heart attack, but nevertheless. What is fascinating is what I discovered there. That these writings of Theosophy and of Blavatsky form the bulwark of what is being taught in theological seminaries of note in the world. This is frightening. And then you have it confirmed by those very theologians who are supposed to teach people the gospel. The Vatican repeats other Christian denominations are not true churches. For the second time in a week, Pope Benedict has corrected what he says are erroneous interpretations of the Second Vatican Council, reasserting the prim primacy of the Roman Catholic Church and saying other Christian communities were either defective or not true churches. So instead of repealing it, no, they repeat it. And then, in 2007, churches back planned to unite under Pope. Radical proposals to reunite Anglicans with the Roman Catholic Church under the leadership of the Pope are to be published this year. The Times has learned this 42 page report signed by the bishops and here we have it the Anglican Church England Rome will find means to reattach the chain wrote Gratan Guinness 120 years ago here Rowan Williams the head of the Anglican Church the Archbishop of Canterbury bows down in subservience to the ring of the Pope the Reformation is dead. Rome makes no secret of our object. It is to reunite England to Latin Christendom by reestablishing the papal supremacy here. If England is ever to be reunited Christian to Christendom, says Cardinal Manning, that was over a hundred years ago, it is by submission to the living authority of the Vicar of Jesus Christ the first step of its return must be obedience to his voice, as rebellion against his authority was the first step of its departure. Well, it's done deal. It's over. And the Lutherans, they won't recapitulate, will you? Will they? No, they have apologized for Martin Luther. And here we have the leaders of the Lutheran World Federation and their president meeting the Pope. You know what? The bigger the cross, the smaller the faith. 
The smaller the faith, the bigger the exteriors. Here they are, dressed in the right colors, mind you, black as opposed to the white of the Pope. If ever I am called to the Pope, I will wear pink. <laughs> Lutheran World Federation President praises Pope Benedict the 16th for his personal contribution to the Joint Declaration, a brilliantly written document, which is pure Catholicism. And here they exchange their gifts. Lutheran world, what have you done? And then the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. That's all the world Reformed Churches. This is the Reformation. And their leader of the World Alliance comes to the Pope and he says, We are eager during our visit here to the Vatican to pursue with you how Catholic and Reformed Christians might be partners together for God's justice in a world wracked by poverty, war, ecological destruction, and the denial of human freedom. Clifton Kirkpatrick, President of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. Subtle shift. What is Reformation all about? It's about the centrality of Christ. It's about teaching about Jesus Christ and salvation in Him. What is religion today? A world wracked by ecological destruction and a denial of human freedom. That's humanism. That's not religion. We have been duped. We have been robbed. And here we are all happy together, the World Alliance of Reformed Churches together with the Pope. We have been sold out. And here is the official webpage of the Episcopal Church. And what do they say? The House of Deputies of the 75th, uh, the, yeah, 75th General Convention of the Episcopal Church today overwhelmingly refused to even consider a resolution that affirmed Jesus Christ as the only name by which any person may be saved. Where are we going? What has happened? At least this man stood up. The Reverend McDowell explained to place a statement of belief over actions is the essence of self-righteousness. On top of leaving the Anglican communion, we've decided to leave Jesus Christ behind as well. This clearly shows that we are of a mind that does not affirm Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we should not be surprised that our church is dying spiritually. The vote went 70.5 for discharge and 29.5 to consider the resolution affirming Jesus Christ as Lord. That's 70.5% of the priests and prelates and preachers even re refused even to consider it, let alone discuss it. And then the Methodists to affirm Roman Catholic theology on justification is eminence Sunday Mbang, World Methodist Council Chairperson, opening the session. We are in big trouble. Indian Catholic Methodists to join Declaration on Justification. No, we want more. Methodists seek global dialogue and exchange with the church. World Methodists have unanimously approved a resolution authorizing further dialogue with the Roman Catholic Church with the stated aim, please note, of full communion in faith, mission, and sacramental life. 
So that little piece of bread, which is the real, absolute, transubstantiate body of Christ according to Catholicism, a sacrifice every time it is offered, is to become universal. Hus died for it. Did you know that? Rogers, who helped Tyndall write the Bible, died. And he went to the flames and he died because he refused to accept it. Today, they're flocking to Rome. I want to ask you whether this is outdated. This is a statement quoted from an old Catholic catechism. The Pope takes the place of Jesus Christ on earth. By divine right, the Pope has supreme and full power in faith in morals over each and every pastor and his flock. He is the true vicar, the head of the entire church, the father and teacher of all Christians. He is the infallible ruler and founder of dogmas, the author of and the judge of councils. The universal ruler of truth, the arbiter of the world, the supreme judge of heaven and earth. The judge of all being judged by no one, God himself on earth. Is this old fashioned? Here you have Pope Benedict acting the role of Christ. Receiving the gifts from the three wise men. They are children. They're just playing a game. But this is a message. Is this enough? No, this is not enough. Let's hear what he has to say. Because it's in what he says that we have to base our judgment. But everything they do sends a signal. The world seen from Rome, Zenith, Vatican. The Holy Father explained. This on Wednesday, when he spoke about the first centenary pope who says that the pope was primate of all the churches. And he confers to St. Clement's letter and he says, The clear distinction between the lay people and the hierarchy does not mean in any way a contraposition, but only the organic connection of a body of an organism with different functions. Sounds so nice. What is he saying? He's saying, here are the ecclesia. They are interposed in juxtaposition between mankind and God. You can't go to God if you don't go through the ecclesia, if you don't go through the church. The Bible knows nothing about that. The Bible says we have free access to Jesus Christ any moment of the day. There is no mediator in this universe other than Christ Jesus according to the Bible. Not according to them. Oh no. In fact, the church is not a place for confusion and anarchy where someone can do whatever he wants at any time. Each one in this organism with an articulated structure practices his ministry according to the vocation received. As pertains to the heads of the communities, Clement specified the doctrine of apostolic succession. So here I am, I'm the Pope, and I have an apostolic succession. I am the representative. He adds... The laws that regulate this derive from God himself in an ultimate analysis. The Father sent Jesus Christ, who sent the apostles. These then sent out the first heads of the communities and established that they would be followed by worthy men. Referring to himself. The church is above all a gift of God, not a creature of ours, the Pope contended. And therefore this sacramental structure, good grief, not only guarantees the common order, but also the precedence of the gift of God that we all need. So what is he to you? 
He is the gift of God that you all need. How far is he going to go in this theology? Here is his address in 2007 to the members of the Episcopal Conference in Portugal. And this is what he says. It is a great joy for me to receive you today in the house of Peter, who by the grace of God are solid pillars of that bridge which you are called to be and to create between humanity and its supreme destiny, the most holy trinity. Wow! Here we have it. The same old battle all over again. You are saved by the ecclesia. You cannot come to God if you do not go through the priest. They are the bridge. He continues and he says, It is not no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Quoting Galatians 2.20, A concrete sign of this incarnation is the pouring out of Christ's life which flows forth from me into the lives of others. This is because I cannot possess Christ just for myself. I can belong to him only in union with all those who have become or who will become his own. We become one body completely joined in single existence. This body of Christ that embraces the humanity of all times and places is the church. So how are you saved? You are saved by the Pope. It is Christ's grace that flows through him to the clergy who are the bridge whereby you have access to God. No. The Bible says we have one mediator between man and God. Not clergy and God. Man and God. The man Christ Jesus. Don't put Jesus down. No turning back on the ecumenical journey, says the Pope. Pope meets the General Secretary now of the World Council of Churches. And during the summit he said, no turning back. And all these churches comprise 561 million people who have to go back and accept the papal primacy that Luther and all the reformers and so many of them fought and died for. The road between Rome and Geneva has not always been smooth, but it is. Read that one word. We don't have to read the whole quote from the World Council of Churches. That one word says, it is what? Irreversible. It's over. That means the Pope is saying that the Reformation is dead. They've killed it. It's over. Here is his address to the members of the joint working group between the World Council of Churches and the Catholic Church in January 2008. I hope I am up to date enough on the issues. I'm not talking ancient history anymore. I'm talking here and now. This is serious. I'm pleased to welcome you, the members of the joint working group between the World Council of Churches and the Catholic Church, as you gather in Rome to begin a new phase of your work. The World Council of Churches and the Catholic Church have enjoyed a fruitful ecumenical relationship dating back to the time of the Second Vatican Council. The joint working group which began in 1965 has worked assiduously to strengthen the dialogue of life which my predecessor Pope John Paul called the dialogue of charity. Good grief. 
This cooperation has given vivid expression to the communion already existing between Christians and has advanced the cause of the ecumenical dialogue and understanding. We are subject to His grace. Cardinal Casper praises the ecumenical commitment of the Pope. And if you dare speak against it, here is a newspaper clip. I'm a terrorist, says the Vatican, 2007. Well, it's finally official. Most of you might have had your suspicions, but now it's a definite yes. According to the Vatican, anybody who criticizes the Pope is now officially a terrorist. Fortunately, I'm not criticizing him. I'm just reading what he says. <laughs> Here we have another newspaper article. Participants gather in Pasadena and they form the new council which is called Christian Churches Together. And they gathered for the first time in 2007. These are the final movements. And we have all these wonderful cardinals, Cardinal Keeler, Archdiocese of Baltimore, Dr. Shaw, National Baptist Convention, you name them, the Orthodox Church, the American bishops, James so-and-so, Pentecostal, Holiness Church, you name it, the whole shooting match. To do what? To grow closer together in Christ in order to strengthen our Christian witness to the world. Splendid robes, purple and crimson. And here we are, all of them together. Let's sign. Let's sign our declaration of our joint walk together. Oh, and the pen goes from hand to hand and the splendid robed individuals, some in black and hoods, look more like Kluk Kluk's clan than anything else, come together and they sign. I want to go back to what Gratan Guinness wrote. So I'm almost finished. Had paganism its temples and altars, its pictures and images? So has Rome. Had paganism its holy water and incense? So has Rome. Had paganism its tonged priests presided over by a pontifex maximus? So has Rome. Had paganism its claim to sacerdotal infallibility? So has popery. In fact, Pope Benedict fired Cardinal Hans Kung because he dared question papal infallibility. Had paganism its gods carried in procession? So has Rome. Has paganism its college of pontiffs? So has Rome, its college of cardinals. Had paganism its religious orders? So has Rome. Had paganism its costly robes? Its queen of heaven, its rural shrines, its processions? So has Rome. Had paganism its pretended miracles and weeping statues? So has Rome. Had paganism its canonization of saints as in the deification of the dead Caesars? So has Rome. Had paganism its idolatrous calendar and festivals? So has Rome. Had paganism its celibacy, mystic signs, relics, cruel persecutions of those who stand for truth and righteousness? So has Rome. Has anything changed, I ask you? And then he says, I would warn you against this evil that is pervading the world and you today, working in and amongst the Reformed churches covered by a veil of righteousness. Wherever you see ritualism or higher criticism, shun it. Wherever you see a priest instead of a preacher, an altar instead of a communion table, wax candles instead of the sunshine of God's love, Ceremony instead of doctrine, sacrament instead of saving grace, liturgy instead of earnest prayer, they call it most holy liturgy, 
in Vatican II. Splendid music instead of spiritual worship. Gorgeous vestments instead of gospel truth. Did you see gorgeous vestments on the screen? Wow. Instead of gospel truth, tradition instead of it is written, crossing instead of Christ, there you have Romanism. No matter what it is called, no matter how attractive the architecture, the music, the solemn ceremonial, shun it. We can't shun it anymore. It's everywhere. Revelation 17, 4, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. I couldn't resist putting that picture in. You know, it's just magnificent. That man is the one who took Pope Benedict's place as Archbishop where he once resided as Archbishop. So I'll just put him in. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with golden precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. This church has not changed. The Reformation has changed. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Revelation 18, verse 4. I would like to suggest we study our Bible. Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let no one rob Christ of his preeminence. Let no one rob Christ of his mediatorial role. Let no one rob Christ as the only advocate of his advocacy. Let no one rob him of his sacrifice. The price he paid was too high for us to give it up now. May God help us. The time for silence is past. The time to speak has come. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.